When we come to the table with a fix-it attitude, that's how we develop this idea where the baby comes out, we dry the baby off, we check all the vital signs, we give a shot in the foot, we put goop in the eyes, we get mom all cleaned up, we put a diaper on her, and then we wrap this little baby up like a little burrito and pop it on her chest. And that's a job well done. Well, that misses the incredible elegance and, and uh, rapture that comes in that first moment when a baby comes out. So I don't know if it's so much a role for men, but it is an opportunity for men to connect with the power of the feminine. You are listening to The Medicine Podcast. I am Mimi. What is up, everybody? This is Chase. So long story short, we were childhood sweethearts turned husband and wife in our early 20s. Despite following the mainstream script for happiness, we actually divorced for three years. Only to later reunite as soulmates with a brand new outlook on love, God, health, and the real medicines of the universe. If you find yourself wondering, is there more to this life, to health, to God, to love? Then you are in the exact right place. Consider this your bridge to expansion for body, mind, and relationships. We are uncovering and discovering with you. Let's go take the medicine. Hey, hey, audio fam, our beloved listeners. This is episode 141 of the Medicine Podcast. We are super grateful to have you spending some time with us today. In this episode, we are speaking to truly one of our favorite people, Nathan Riley. You know, when you meet a new friend and connect with them so deeply and so intentionally very early on that it feels like you've been friends for like 15 years after 15 minutes, (laughs) that was us like 100%. We've known Nathan's soul in past lives is what it feels like. So Nathan is a holistic OBGYN and probably the most profound medical advocate for women that I've ever interacted with. On his website, Beloved Holistics, he greets his visitors with this. Hi, I'm Nathan and I'm a recovering conventional doctor. I was in school for most of my life, trained in two medical specialties, then looked back and found myself disillusioned with the conventional maternity care model. Now, instead of serving the medical industrial complex, I serve women and their partners in achieving vitality. I have done extensive study in holistic lifestyle medicine, and my practice is based on the midwifery model. I borrow from Eastern traditions like Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medicine, and I provide holistic support to fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, and menopause long before I recommend surgery, hormonal contraception, or other pharmaceuticals. We at Beloved Holistics envision a world that honors humans as embodiments of the highest insight and intuition through which they are free to make autonomous, informed choices pertaining to body, spirit, and soul. Okay, so that gives you an idea of the intention and consciousness with which he approaches his work and working with his clients. So in this episode, we discuss so many juicy topics like what prompted him to step away from the mainstream medical model, what people overlook when it comes to fertility, why he doesn't really trust most clinical research, why you might reconsider choosing IVF. 
Then we ask Nathan to jump into some murky and very nuanced waters to do some myth busting for us. And I will offer this disclaimer that we do not shy away from very controversial topics in this episode. Things like abortion, hospital versus home birth, circumcision, vasectomies, epidurals, ultrasounds, and even the use of psychedelics during pregnancy. And I'll just say this, that some of this may trigger you a bit, but we're okay with that because it's a core value of ours to be able to have difficult, nuanced conversations from a place of love and consciousness. We must if we want to evolve. Am I right? So if you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it with someone you love. It helps us grow and reach more hungry souls. And make sure you check out Nathan on Instagram at Nathan Riley, OBGYN. His website is BelovedHolistics.com and his incredible podcast, which is easily one of my top three podcasts that I listen to, the Holistic OBGYN podcast. The guests he brings on are out of this world, y'all. Okay, let's get into it. Enjoy my loves. Welcome back to the Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi and I have my king, my lover in this life and all others with me here. What is going on, everybody? <laughs> We're so fired up for this conversation today. I said it uh, before we started recording, but we have our new best friend yeah. on the line. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, the medicine podcast, Nathan Riley. So glad you're here, my man. What is up, my fam? It is, it is really, really nice to be here with you. We had such a fun recording on my show, and I'm so glad we get to you know, toss around some questions from your side and yeah. get in the weeds a little bit. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and we have so many questions. Like, honestly, it was hard to narrow it down to like what will fit inside of one to two hour <laughs> podcast episode. Um, and one thing that I love, I've shared this with you, but I'll share it with our listeners. One thing I love about you so much is that you make it very clear. First and foremost, you wear many hats and have so many different areas of expertise that you work with and, and consult people in. But one of the things that I appreciate most about you is that you are first and foremost, a patient advocate, whoever you're working with or a client, um, as you, as you call them, which is so beautiful. Um, and it, it is separate from maybe even some of your own personal beliefs and opinions. And I think in today's world, especially for the medical community, that is very rare. So I just wanted to extend gratitude for you. Um, I know that if, if we ever had a question or, you know, sending people to you, um, that I would be so just fully confident in your ability to treat that individual person based on their needs, which is just incredible. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, you know, one, one, a little piece of my platform is I do a lot of the biohacking and the functional medicine and everything, but we definitely have to start customizing our care for individuals, you know, so the things that work for you, Chase, are not going to work for Mimi and vice versa. So yeah. when we go to the medical system, we all complain about being put into a, you know, labeled and put into a box. We should be, you know, equally, um, I don't know, resourceful in meeting the individual needs of a woman yeah. or a man, even outside of the allopathic system. And when we get caught in that diagnosis, treatment sort of labeling process, that's I think where the conventional medical model went wrong and is, is steering people not towards a path of vitality, but just merely avoiding death, right? Like we, right. Can, we can make the, the same mistakes, in other words, 
in the quote alternative therapy world if we're not careful about like really taking a step back and considering what is this person's story why are they here and where are they going and mm-hmm. uh, and that's why people find me that's why people want to work with me and um i i'm also the first to admit i don't know but let's figure it out yeah so, yeah so i have the luxury of doing trust that. you more yeah you know oh, yeah right you can't you can't get out of the woods until you, you realize and recognize and acknowledge that you're lost <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. right it takes a so keep... person to, to be able to be like you know I don't, I'm not really sure, but let's figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I, you know, I, not, not a lot of people are able to do what I do because they're still bound by a system that incentivizes productivity over, over uh, what works yeah. necessarily. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people find a lot of reprieve in the system. Um, and then a lot of other people feel more broken after they've started the surgery and pharmaceutical routes. So mm-hmm. there's not a one size fits all. And as you said, I'm a patient advocate. If a, if a C-section is is what a person really desires. We talk about what that all means to make sure that they have all the information and understanding. It's not my job to tell them what to do or not to do, have a home birth or a hospital birth or whatever else in my OB practice. It's like, what's important to you? And yeah. um, if a person feels more safe in the, in the system, let's get you as healthy as possible so that the system can serve you. Sure. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think we've all just been groomed to want a step-by-step solution with a clear, predefined answer. And all we got to need to do is just kind of like follow the steps. Just tell me what the freaking steps are. And that's in every lane. That's, that's in health. That's in, you know, what happens after I die, you know, subscription to various, you know, yeah, religious institutions or businesses. And the reality is like, like going back to the, the kind of the forest analogy is like, nobody really knows the way through the forest, but there are people like you who have studied it thoroughly. And there's this very intellectual uh, pillar of your ability to navigate through the forest. And then you've also honed your senses. Mm -hmm. You've developed the ability to pick up and read and intuitively navigate your way through the forest. And it's this combination of both of those things, you know, call them the masculine and the feminine, if you will, but it's a, I'm with you in this, we're going to get through this but I'm, maybe I'm not going to be able to tell you step A through Z to perfection and where exactly we're going to end up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I, as you were saying that, I was imagining like I'm the hermit who's wandered through the woods a whole bunch of times yeah. and yeah. a bunch of dead ends. And I'm meeting you at that, at that like crossroads with a Y. Yeah. I'm like, Guys, if you go this way, here's what you can expect. It might be good for you, but there's also this other path that I think is actually pretty great for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. so because I have the experience and and, you know, I've, I've hit a lot of the pitfalls myself within the, the medical establishment. It does serve some people, you know, like we've talked about before, if you got a knife through your eye or something, you probably don't want to pray that away or go to the herbalist. <laughs> you probably need to go and get some emergency surgery, like right yeah. now, go down that path as fast as you yeah. can. Yeah. yeah On totally. the other hand, knowing what's down that path, I, yeah, there's some things there, but there's also a lot of, a lot of love and light on this side as well. So yeah, love that, love sure. that approach. Yeah. Yeah. We are so excited to jump into all things, holistic pregnancy, birth, death, all the uh, <laughs> controversial topics in between for sure. Um, yeah. But first every, uh, every guest gets this first question. And that is, what do you love in your life? What aspect of your life do you love so much that you wish you could gift it to every human? This is an easy one for me. I think I even actually alluded to this when we, when we last spoke, but the, um, <clears throat> if everybody had a woman in their life, like my wife, especially every man, 
button, it would be an easy, this would be an easy go mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, it also would be quite, it could be quite challenging as well. Um, but when you have a person in your life who's willing to allow you to show up authentically as yourself, flaws and all, mistakes and all, and say, hey, listen, you tried, it didn't work out. I'm with you. Let's go around the corner and see what's around the bend. You know, I, I think having a person like that in our life, and that's not to say everybody should be married and have kids and all that other stuff. But if when you have a person who shows up like that for you and just holds you mm. in the way that we need to be held, it, it gives us permission to make mistakes, to admit that we don't know, to admit that we're wrong, and really to express the full range of emotions that come with being a person. So that is the gift. If anybody could, if anybody out there knows another Stephanie Riley or Stephanie <laughs> maiden name, uh, you're going to be better off getting to know somebody like that and having them in your yeah. corner. Word. I totally feel that. Yeah. Just a true <laughs> word. <laughs> down homey partner that is also super sexy and you love, yeah, yeah. you know, like you love connecting on that level too. But like, I totally feel that. I mean, that is absolutely, if I were to answer that question that we gave you, it's that it's someone who sees all of you. And in my case, how I articulate it is someone who sees all of me, sees my soul, also allows me to show up as my authentic self and loves every bit, thinks right. every bit is beautiful in some way. Mm -hmm. And that is the ultimate gift. Yeah, we were just talking about this the other day, like having that sort of love, that that puzzle piece, ooey gooey, just perf you know, seeming seemingly perfect uh, connection is like, it's like falling in love with your home and in your, your home community. It's like, I love this place, not just because the summers are killer, not just because, you know, there's a, there's a really fun mountain or ocean nearby. I love it for the fall, winter, spring, summer, every season, every attribute. I'm in love with it. I'm curious. I'm ready to see what's next. And it's different than just a place you would want to vacation. It's an actual like home yeah. energy uh, that you can get with a human. Amen. Yeah. And, and yeah. And my wife is sexy as hell. Like she is my dream girl. She always has been. We went when we were 16, as we talked about, and yeah. I just got lucky. You know, I didn't get to swim out there and meet all the fishes in the sea necessarily. And I'm okay with that. I had, we had yeah. a period apart like you guys did. And it was like, man, I really just lucked out in the first pick of the woman I saw at like a diner when we were 16. Mm. I was like, I'm obsessed with this person and, uh, <laughs> and, and fast forward. And she's also this emotionally um, just gifted and, and just such a supportive person. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I could go on and on about her. Yeah. So she's yeah. Definitely my greatest asset. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have a lot of uh, similarities between our mm. two stories in love. That is. Yeah, totally. Right. You know, another question I, I love to uh, would hear your, your take on, and, and it should be an easy one, you know, easy. Yes or no. Um, what are your views on God or the divine um, do you subscribe to any specific, you know, epistemology or, or religious practice? That's a really good question. When you guys sent this question before, I, I, I gave a very short answer because I don't really know. I think it's a constantly evolving uh, conversation for me. And as we have more experiences, I think it's natural for you to step back and say, man, does this fit into my worldview? I will say that, you know, I ra was raised in a family. We never went to church. We had very religious, very little religious conversation in the house, but my parents sort of figured if you want, if you have questions about God or the after the before, whatever, we can talk about it. And we did. And my parents also used a lot of psychedelics back in the day. So I think um, my mom and dad 
it's a funny side story. When my dad passed away in medical school, we found his like, a key to his like secret cabinet. And he had a bunch of ammunition in there and he had a bunch of cannabis in there and a bunch of, you know, uh, paraphernalia for using cannabis in various ways. <laughs> but he also had a stack of philosophy books cool. and he had, everything was bookmarked and stuff. And I was like, man, if I, if I had known that part of my dad, I would sort of conjuring, uh, what, what, you know, what sort of insights would have come to him if I had shared my experiences with birth death, everything in between the birth of our own daughter in our bedroom, just 50 feet from us. And not to mention my own ex explorations with plant medicines and mushrooms. So um, I will have to put a pin in that. Uh, I think I probably most resonate with a combination of like a, a Taoist and, and a Buddhist, those kind of traditions, and also the sort of collective one that we perhaps uh, are, are graced with after we pass through that portal at the end of our life, um, yeah. which I sort of frame as like the beginning of, uh, of something quite beautiful. I feel like that's a privilege to step into that space. And I've been there through some really, really hard medicine journeys myself. So it's almost like a confirmation of what I experienced in the birth and death observations of just being present with these, these sacred um, transformations of spirit. So it's not a, an easy answer, but uh, it's a great question. <laughs> yeah, it is. We just, we just, dive right into the depths. Um, and it is, it is a difficult question to answer, especially if you tend to leave an open mind and not stay concrete on any one set of beliefs. Um, I love the way that Paul check frames. This as a belief system is by definition, a closed system, which means that you either have to break some of your programming or unlearn to right. learn something else, mm -hmm. um, or just completely, you know, throw it away or denounce it or whatever, if you want to move into something else. So that's, that's kind right. of where I'm at. And I know I, I won't speak for Chase, but I believe we are uh, similar here where it's like, you know, I don't know, but I'm really okay with not knowing it, it mm -hmm. makes life more magical. And it's not, there's not this like pressure to figure anything out. Right. You know, it's just like, I will take in information and experience as it serves me and uh, feels authentic to me in my spiritual experience. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then if you go through some big something in your life, uh, whether it's, I mean, it could be really big, like a near death experience, or it could be birth, a huge event. You could be faced with losing the person who's most important to you, like a grandfather or a mother or whatever. It, it serves us to take a step back and, and kind of fit that into our worldview. I mean, if we're not willing to change, then, then we just continue on this path. Like we've, mm -hmm. we've talked about and, yeah. and while it can be very confronting, it's also, um, you know, it, it, that's really where the growth is, where, where, where you are afraid to go is actually where the biggest growth comes from. Yeah. 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 And I think like, you know, at least for us, we, we have experiences that we can, we can say, I think that was an experience of God. I think that was an interaction with God, yeah. but it's kind of like, being blind and never having had a strawberry and you just take a bite of a strawberry <laughs> and somebody's like, Hey, you know, describe that. Give me your views on the strawberry. You're like, I don't know. I just had it and it was amazing, <laughs> but I can't really go into the specifics on what the strawberry was. I'm just right. still somewhat blind to it. And we just don't have necessarily the, the rationale to be able to articulate God, but we can sure as hell experience it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. It's, uh, you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. uh, once you get some new information, you, you pack that in, and that becomes a little part of you. And if you if you consider any of the great thinkers, I mean, Carl Jung, he was largely discarded by the, the medical community, but his own work, and like, if you read his red book, 
which is in the you know background of many people's great libraries, he was getting something from somewhere else. Like he, it wasn't channeling necessarily. It was that he had this spiritual awakening, which helped to, to which helped him derive a completely understanding of human consciousness. Yeah. And that also made him look like a total quack, like quackadoo who got information from above in a time where we completely ignore the immeasurable right. or the experience of a person. We actually are only interested in the empirical way of measuring, computing, et cetera, which was set forth by Rene Descartes. So um, our, we all, our society and everybody, the medical system and everything, we all benefit from just, just being okay with being wrong Yeah. and, uh, and saying, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love that because because that approach can then carry over into uh, your work in the three D world, which is you know holistic OBGYN and birth and death care for your clients. Yeah. Um, on that note of staying open and being able to change your mind, obviously we know that you're probably constantly learning and studying and taking in new information and running it through your system. When was the last time that you can remember significantly changing your mind about something, maybe in the pregnancy and fertility world, since we're mm -hmm. going to get into that conversation, but also if anything else is just blaring, um, you can maybe speak to a few things if you like, but when was the last time you, you changed your mind on something? Yeah. Well, I'd already, I, that's a great question too. And the, the first thing that comes to mind is what happened these past couple of years with the COVID and the pandemic which is that, you know, as a doctor, you, you work your whole life to get to a place where, you know, you can put these things into practice after years of studying textbooks and practicing surgeries and all of that in residency. And, and um, what you hope is that, okay, there's a lot of medical literature that's being published every year around the world. We have a group of people called the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, known famously or notoriously as ACOG, who sets out the guidelines for us. And there's a group of people whose whole job is to review every piece of new literature and, and incorporate it into our guidelines. Mm. By doing that, it's the American College of, of Cardiologists, the American uh, Pediatrics Association or whatever, like every discipline, every specialty has their governing body who is there to serve us. They're there to help us in the same way that the CDC um, working with you know the FDA and NIH, they're supposed to get us healthy things that have less risks and you know, a greater benefit to risk ratio. Fortunate, you know, when you're in medicine, you're like, thank goodness we have these oversight bodies, right? Because they're doing all the hard work. I can't possibly digest every single study that's coming out around yeah. the world. You know, there's probably something like 10,000 trials going on at a time. So how am I supposed to digest all yeah. that? Fortunately, we have these bodies that do that. The problem with the past couple of years has been that I've actually gone deeper into the actual medical publication world because there was a Lancet study. It was like 90,000 people recruited from 120 countries that showed that hydroxychloroquine wasn't helpful. And it was like at the very beginning of the pandemic and, and like a month later, the Lancet retracted. The, Lancet, the Lancet's considered widely regarded as probably one of the top three medical journals with integrity mm. in the world. So the Lancet had this happen and everybody was like, we haven't heard of any study like this happening. Like, is this a real? And so a month later, sure enough, tracked it and they were like oh sorry we didn't uh we we didn't check out sources of the data you know are bad and i was like if this is happening at the level of the lancet up yeah. in, which is the peer review process yeah we're in deep trouble so then i started going down that rabbit hole and marcia angle at the new england journal had spoken out about pharmaceutical dollars uh, really driving publication bias within our, our major medical journals and the new england journal is a top i mean it's not the lancet but it's definitely up there um, and you have to consider there's like five thousand journals or so we're talking the top 10 
there's two of them that have already betrayed me. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, then there was another Michael McCarthy at the, you know, former editor at the Lancet. He came up with a whole book on the, the, the sort of fraud within medical publications. And then lastly, John Giardini wrote a book called The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine. And between just those three of the many resources I started going down, I was like, oh no, all of the data that I'm utilizing in order to counsel my patients and me and my family and friends is corrupted. In other words, this isn't actually an exploration of truth. This is a selective publication based on who's giving the journal more money to put their study in there, which probably supports the drug that's advertised on the next page. And you can, I mean, I'm not making any of this up. It was so disillusioning and dismantling for me because now it's like, well, shit, I need to actually read every single study. And of course, I'm not going to do that because I don't even know what conflicts of interest were in the minds of the people who put the study together. Mm-hmm. So that's not to say we should throw all that out the window, but over the past 50 years, I think we, I've, become very, uh, I've become very dubious of anything that's come out within the, probably since World War II, because that's when the money started really flowing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Big Pharma is so influential in this space that I just feel like, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's one little piece of information, but I got to actually lean on what actually works and what my patients are telling me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what my patients are telling me, whether it's birth control, uh, you know, postpartum recovery, whatever is not even reflected in the literature. And it's like, guys, we missed, a, we missed something here. And now I can't trust you. I mean, that's how I feel. And that's yeah. a big thing to change your mind about, whether it be vaccines or pharmaceuticals or hospital birth versus home birth or whatever else. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a huge one. That's a really good yeah, one. And, and I can, I can imagine that is like a little bit, sh- it's shaking to your foundation of being right. a medical doctor and relying on, I mean, I, I was a, you know, I'm a dental hygienist by degree and we were taught the same thing that we practice evidence-based dental care and um, it's ingrained in you. This is evidence-based medicine. We're looking at the studies, but you, you kind of have to approach it after seeing some of these um, corruptions, I guess that yeah, probably not everything is damaged or corrupted, but you have to, after experiencing that, at least approach it like that and then have them like right. basically prove you wrong, prove you wrong that this is not in fact corrupt. And I can see how probably 99.9% of doctors and practitioners, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you feel like more, uh, if you're seeing something different from the collective of doctors that you uh, know and work with, but I can imagine how that would be so dismantling that you don't even want to touch it as a doctor. You're like, I can't even let my mind go there because then what else in my life is a complete lie, is a complete sham. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, like within the religious community, right? We have all this stuff coming out about the Catholic church. And even my wife asked recently, how are people still able to call themselves this is not, I'm for or against any specific denomination of Christianity or otherwise, but she's like, how could you possibly hear this stuff and still feel like, you know what? My priest is probably the guy and those, all the other guys are bad. That's, I think how, you know, through that cognitive, dis- I think that we just, it's too painful to admit that the, the bodies, and by the way, the CDC on all of the, the recommendations come from these journals. So the journals publish this and the CDC's job is to say, Here's what we think we should do regarding Z based on the available literature. So all of these bodies, if there's so much pharmaceutical dollars driving the research, then they're all just, I guess, not willing to look into the darkness and say, oh my 
God, what have we done? Yeah. Because that's really the shift we need. But I mean, just like with religions or politicians or whatever else, it's, I think it's just so painful for people to look at the, the, at the betrayal yeah. you know, and to become disillusioned. Cause that's scary. Now what? Uh, now what? Yeah. Everything was a lie. Now what? You know? It's, it's, we have this tendency to externalize our identity to labels and to right. our resumes and to our accolades and, you know, our credentials. And so we work through life, we get in our twenties, thirties, forties, and we have this list of all of the things that we can look at and say, that's me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when those get threatened or disproved in certain lanes, it's this, who am I now? Because we've just externalized our identity and we've attached to labels instead of this like understanding from the inside out of who we are and right. the, the, the real kind of like core value uh, type themes and, and less the literal, you know, trophies and awards and, and resumes that suggest we're something. And I think it's, it's literally that it's this externalized breaking apart of our identity and, and the big question of who am I without these? Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. So, you know, you imagine you're, you're in school from the age of 18 on trying to be a doctor. This is why I have a lot of compassion for my colleagues. Like I get it guys. We all sacrificed so much from nearly two decades. You know, I'm in my late thirties now started that process at age 18. So 20 years later, I've invested $500,000 into my education, which is growing through compound interest in ways that nobody wants to really imagine. And I've been trained to do one thing, which is to work within the medical industrial complex. They're pumping us out with medical diplomas in order to serve a very specific role. So if that's my role, fortunately, I have mommy and daddy at the top of the, the echelon to tell me that I'm doing a good job. But if now I have this, this sense of doubt about the guidelines or whatever coming down from these, these organizations, it's like, I'm only trained to do one thing. And now I can't rely on the person employing me to do that. Mm-hmm. So that was really the impetus for me to have, I just had to step away altogether. And, and that was a, my ego out the window. Mm-hmm. Not that I had much ego left anyways, after medical training, but um, <laughs> It was the ego. It was the financial insecurity and instability. How am I going to make a living doing this? But if I was doing that for 40 more years, knowing what, what I sort of, I had an inkling of it, you know, just from this pharmaceuticals, just simply not working or causing more problems, but then to realize, oh my gosh, Pfizer's actually paid for the study that we're actually deriving our guidelines from. That was like, well, if I'm going to do this for 40 more years, I'd rather not feel bad at the end of at, at the end of the road, and at least feel like, hey, I wasn't making as much money, but at least I'm doing what feels right to me, and and is actually working for my clients. This episode of the medicine is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore. Question: Do you know what the most nutrient dense foods on the planet are? Answer: Organ meats. Providing a hearty dose of vitamin A, zinc, copper, folate, B12, and more, but they're not always appetizing to take down. I've tried. That's why we absolutely love Optimal Carnivore. Organ meats support and nourish our bodies in ways that synthetic or plant-derived nutrients are simply not capable of providing. Those who incorporate organ meats report feeling more energy, less brain fog, and like they're truly thriving. 
These are 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, freeze-dried and encapsulated into convenient bovine gelatin capsules. They choose New Zealand because it's a pure source, a pristine land with rich soil, lush greenery, and one of the cleanest environments on earth. Their products are 100% grass-finished and free of all hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. Our ancestors would have eaten the whole animal, so Optimal Carnivore created this unique blend of nine different organs, a powerful combination including beef, liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Each organ contains its own unique benefits and nutritional profile and provides a large range of nutrients that support all the major organ systems. The guys at Optimal Carnivore believe everyone deserves easy access to the most nutrient-dense foods and wanted to take the guesswork and mess out of eating organ meat. They are also giving back to the planet by planting one tree for every product sold. Our favorites are the grass-fed organ complex that I mentioned and the grass-fed liver capsules. To get some more of these essential nutrients in your life, go to amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore and use the code themedicine to save 10% on all of their products. As always, bringing you only the best, my loves. Cheers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If that's not a conflict of interest paying for the study, I don't know what is. Um, but yeah, I would, <laughs> yeah right. I would love to get into that. Um, that, you know, your your transition from kind of the mainstream medical model. You said you were you were trained um at Kaiser. Is that okay for me to say? Kaiser in LA, yeah. In Kaiser in LA, yeah. <laughs> um, and now you don't do anything like that at all. What was that transition like for you and and how did it all come about? Well, that's a good question. Um, I suppose that the the big thorn in my my leg was that as we were doing more and more things, let's talk about pregnancy because that's what everybody loves to talk about. But let's look at pregnancy alone. You have a hospital birth, and <clears throat> we only look at healthy mom, healthy baby. The problem with that with that I was finding is that when I saw them back for their next birth, they felt very very shaken by the experience, even if it was an, an undisturbed all natural birth or whatever. But the vast majority of births in the hospital are not undisturbed. They're not all natural. There's all sorts of interventions. And then we are there to save the day when things go awry. So when I saw my colleagues celebrating how great we were able to do that C-section to save this person's life, but then looking at why did they even end up in the operating room, it was like, oh boy. So <clears throat> the first thing is we intervened a bunch of times and created a you know, an, an opportunity for some really bad things to happen. You know, a baby's heart rate drops, the placenta is not getting enough blood flow. There's not enough oxygen circulating, right? And we save the day and then we say, look at how great our, our institution is. Fine. But also there was nothing from conception all the way to the time, to the point where they were in the hospital having a baby that would have rectified the underlying cause of the dysfunction that landed them in the operating mm -hmm. room or, or with a bad perineal laceration, which is when the skin tears during birth. Not every woman has a laceration. And we're not talking about a cut, like an intentional cut. We're talking about the skin tearing. Mm. And the reason that many women don't have that is because their body and their tissues are extremely well-nourished. So what I started realizing is, okay, people aren't healthy. They're getting pregnant. Sometimes their bodies are being forced to get pregnant through REI, which is the IVF and the IUI and all these injectable hormones. We force you to get pregnant without ever getting the soil healthy. You then end up in pregnancy with all these complications. And now you're compelled 
And sometimes you're not even able, you're healthy enough to have a home birth. And now you're in the hospital and now we're doing all these interventions to try to, you know, again, avoid death. You end up in the operating room and we're like, Phew, close call. But if had we, had we just focused on the health of a woman as she's embarking on that, that fertility journey and the health of the man for that matter, you don't have placental issues. You don't have growth issues. The, the perineum is stretchy and elastic. The pelvis is stretchy and elastic. Um, you don't end up with a lot of the hypertensive disorders, gestational diabetes, all these other things that land you in the hospital. And now we need to save the day because we didn't take care of the soil from the very beginning. And this is a resource issue. This is a, a mindset issue. And this is a lot of you know doctors and nurses alike and midwives and many nurse practitioners, et cetera, saying, don't worry, we can do this for you. But that's not, that's not how this goes. When you get pregnant, there's a lot of personal responsibility. The system is just not set up to do all of the lifestyle things, which I hold near and dear and the Czech Institute hold near and dear, that if we got those things under control in the beginning, you wouldn't even need an OBGYN. You could have a home birth or a birth out in the woods for all I care, and you're still right. going to have a normal birth, you know, an yeah. undisturbed, sometimes even painless birth relative to what a lot of people go through in the hospital. Wow. So, um, to, so that was a long roundabout way of saying that I realized that, man, I can either keep doing what OBGYNs do, which is bring a scalpel to the party every time that you're called, um, and Pitocin and all these other pharmaceuticals for that matter, or how about we do everything we can to keep you from even needing somebody like me who did mm -hmm. all that training and 70% of our surgery is our training is surgery. So when you're that good at surgery, we're pretty darn good at surgery. Everything looks like a nail and we're walking around with a hammer or a, yeah. a scalpel for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to start taking care of people on a more holistic you know, level. And then that took me down the path of what does real holistic care look like? It's not just natural remedies. It's taking care of the spirit, the soul and the body all, all at once in the mind. Yeah, yeah. I love oh, it. Beautiful. Truly holistic for sure. And I, I love the way that you frame that. I have never made that connection with IVF and certain fertility treatments. Maybe there's a reason why you you're not getting pregnant naturally. Yeah. And of course we know that, you know, there oftentimes is something that's maybe related to lifestyle or as you call it, getting the soil healthy. That makes so much sense when you say it like that, but I've never really thought of IVF as almost like forcing a body to get pregnant when the body's innate intelligence is saying like, Hey, right. whoa, we're not good. Right. We're not able to carry a healthy pregnancy, but then we're kind of forcing them into it. I've never heard that before. That's yeah. A great way to phrase it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, I, I appreciate that, that Mimi. And if we, we look at most issues that plague people, you know, they want to blame the system for not getting their cardiac meds right and everything else. And then but they're also not able to take care of themselves, whether it's for financial reasons or they're in a city like LA where you have some of the richest and poorest people in the, in the country living on the same block. You know, we've got all these social determinants of health. And even when people have means, they're just like too easy to open the door to the IVF clinic and say, let's just do this now because I, I just want to be in control of it. That's one way to do it. But we also know that IVF, and I'm not picking on IVF. I just think that we need to get all of the fundamentals in order. And if that still isn't working, then we can start talking about IVF and IUI, which is when you take semen and you, you basically override a woman's cycle. And then at the right moment, you, you put the semen in there, you inject something called HCG. It causes the, the ovulation. And then you, you make it happen. You sort of try to play God there in a way. If we haven't done the fundamentals, then you're bound to maybe get pregnant, but then if patients also 
have a higher risk of all the other things I talked about. So it actually is a risk factor for a lot of complications in pregnancy, IVF alone. And the vast majority of people who go to IVF haven't really worked with somebody like me to fine tune their, their innate, you know, uh, healing wisdom, you know, um, supporting their adrenals, supporting their thyroid, et cetera, through more natural means so that their body is equipped with all of the resources it needs to grow a baby and have a healthy, a healthy birth. Interesting. And so I'm, I'm, I'm picking up that this is, this is increasing this, this approach is significantly increasing. And do you mean the holistic approach or no, the, the, the IVF? Like, oh, okay. um, and it's not necessarily, is it, is it out of just like laziness in, in general, you know, health practices and, 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 you know, fertility optimization as a part of a lifestyle, or is it more of this like transactional nature that our world seems to be ever evolving into where we want shit to happen now and we don't want to work for it? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, Chase. I, I think that inherent in your or implicit in your question is um, if people are having to rely on this medical system to do these, ex, these really expensive, a very invasive means of, of, quote, forcing the pregnancy, people are like, yeah, but people don't have access to food and, and clean water and all that. And that's true but those people can't afford IVF. So the people that are showing up in the IVF clinic definitely have the means to work on this for three to six months before they even try to start talking about fertility. And and also people who are pursuing those means generally are a little bit older. So they haven't had that extra 10, you know, they've had 10 more years of perhaps not either having, not having the education or the uh, the insight perhaps and the the self-reflection on how they could actually improve their health. Sure. Um, you know, there are people like you that I wouldn't expect you guys to have any issues with getting pregnant, but if you did, we could fine tune some things and then you may not even have to go down that path. I guess that's kind of what I, what yeah. I, think, you. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's multifactorial. Totally. Well, I would love to get in a little bit of those, of those, uh, you know, very specific, you know, fertility related lifestyle. Yeah. This is in modalities and, and even like, um, you know, we're both in great shape and, and it's such a priority health is such a priority, but like, we also have been through adrenal exhaustion, both of us in our twenties. And I, I I completely tanked my testosterone. Um, and it's, and I'm still on a roller coaster journey at 32 after 27, just bottoming out my hormones. Um, and so I do have this thing in the back of my mind, just like, I look good today. I feel good today, but I do have less than optimal hormones. And how is that going to translate when I, when I get to the point of wanting to have a child? So You know, what are these lifestyle factors for men and women that, that are, that we can just hit the ground running on now? Yeah. And I mean, these are completely free, you know, so even let's, let's assume we have no expendable income, right? You're the person who's working three jobs. You've got, you're barely, you know, making ends meet. You go to the grocery store and you buy, let's even say that you buy the non-organic produce. We get, here's one example of how our society is not really fundamentally in alignment with with health. You drive up to the grocery store and you find the parking spot closest to the door. You don't have time to exercise. You can't afford a gym, gym membership. I get it. But you're about to haul 60 pounds of groceries out and you got your kids in tow. So you, you know, you give each kid a bag and you park as far as possible from the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're doing now a farmer's carry all the way to and from elevators, escalators at the airport. I will lug my luggage up and down the steps. Cause I know I'm not going to move. I'm going to yeah. be sitting in a plane for three hours and on the tarmac for three more hours for refueling, right? People on the escalator look at you like you're a nut. You're job. insane. Like, what? What are you? You're taking oh, stairs? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Overachiever. 
<laughs> right. And you know, if, if you're not sleeping and you're not doing anything else, like you probably should a little bit, but if we're just looking at one simple fundamental thing, we're not moving. We're 90 degree angles yeah. on the couch, watching Netflix every night, eating ice cream. If you're eating ice cream every night and you're not moving ever, it's not just a matter of getting fat. You are putting non-food into a body and that body is not pumping anything. Your cellular machinery is just like, doesn't have to do the job of a healthy person. So um, <laughs> we could go down that path so far, but you know, the seven fundamental principles, well, six of them are checks. They're sleep, diet, <clears throat> movement, hydration, breath, and mindset. And, and mindset gets into stress management, um, knowing self, knowing your purpose, archetypes, et cetera. What is, like, what is your big dream? Where are you headed in this world? But then I also added some EMF mitigation in there because we are swimming in EMF. And if you look at this, you know, works within chimatics and whatnot, there is definitely something that is happening to us being immersed, mm -hmm. just flooded with electromagnetic everywhere. But even that one aside, moving, sleeping, eating as well as your resources will allow you to, allow you to eat. That's where we start. That's the bottom line. That's the, that's the buy-in, so to speak. Yeah. And can get into some of the functional stuff. So once we have all that stuff in order, we've got your amalgam fillings out, we've got your gut back in order through some, you know, some probiotics and taking some dairy and gluten out. I mean, it's all the basic stuff that I'm sure people in your show know about. Then we can step it up and we can start looking at the chakras. We can start looking at some functional medicine testing. Mm -hmm. um, there's a Dutch test, which actually looks at how your body produces hormones from the adrenal cortex, which are your salt uh, sex and sugar regulating hormones, how those interact, let's say Mimi for you with the ovaries. And if that system is out of whack, we're, we're noticing low waking cortisol, for example, those types of things, then we're looking at adrenal exhaustion, but it's not just adding in what's, what's lacking in the, in the algorithm. Like we have to consider why are your adrenals smoked? So we can't pull it. You have to go back and get some rest. You have to turn the lights off sooner. You have to wake up with the sun, go down with the sun. And, um, and, and so these are all things that are pretty darn free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just a matter of meeting a person where they're at, their resources will go. You know, what I'm doing is not like rocket science. It is very, very fundamental stuff, but there is an education piece there. And there's also, um, some habit change in, in developing healthy habits and self-love. I mean, that's a big part of this is how can we love ourselves better than just, you know, a Ben and Jerry's tub of ice cream every night. Mm -hmm. You know, I love Ben and Jerry's. I freaking mm -hmm. love ice cream. It's, it's the best thing on the planet. But if you're eating that every single day and then you're yeah. fertility doc and they're like, you know what, I, I, let's just pump you full of hormones and get you pregnant. You're bound yeah. to have the same metabolic function when you're pregnant as you were before pregnancy, which is why you probably were struggling with fertility in the first place. Yeah. And it, and it, it requires patience and presence and being associated with the process. I think we want to disassociate with things that are uneasy and that have resistance. And so getting in the work, even if, even if the resistance has to do with just being patient, yeah, like you're tomorrow, you're not gonna be able to take something and, you know, be able to have a, an erection. I mean, I guess there are you know, ways of doing that, but it's like, you might have to do a few weeks of waking up with the sun, going down with the sun, you know, taking your eyes off of blue light in the evening or the afternoon, um, looking at your mineral uh, and various like nutrition um, elements or, or nutritional deficiencies. And it's not going to be ready tomorrow. It's going to be this relationship yeah. build. 
And I think that's where a lot of like, they seem simple because it's lifestyle stuff and it's free, but we'd almost rather have the expensive transactional, give me a 24 hour turnaround on uh, the result. Yeah. It, yeah. And it, even through the lens of like functional medicine, which I, I really, <clears throat> I'm not pushing back against it, but I also try to get people to realize that you're just replacing dysfunctional system with another. There's a use for and as there is a use for allopathic medicine and Chinese medicine and everything else. But if you're doing this as a replacement for a healthy lifestyle, mm -hmm. again, to the best of your ability, education and resources, then you're just going down the same path. We're just replacing one system for another. You know, a lot of the functional medicine testing feels good because it's like a thousand dollars worth of labs and then a thousand dollars worth of supplements. Right. And now you feel kind of freed to that. Well, that's not really serving anybody if you aren't sleeping well. And if you're doing, it feels like a, like a head banger every time you wake up on Monday morning to go and do. So, so again, a lot of these interventions don't require all the expensive testing. I do all of that well, if I think necessary, heavy metal testing, gut, you know, stool testing, et cetera. But we have to really ourselves get back to like, what is it that I'm, that is prohibiting me from harmonizing with my surroundings? Yeah. Oh, waking that's a great up crabby, way to put it. Having a, yeah. Waking up crabby, having a hard time getting, you know, the energy up to have sex. Those are pretty natural things that we all want to do in our thirties is have sex. But most people are struggling with their libido. They're struggling with testosterone. What is the underlying reason that a young, mm -hmm. healthy man doesn't have testosterone has the shoulders, the back and all of that. It's because their adrenals. Mm. And it, yeah. that takes time to, to repair. Like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And everything that you're talking about, you know, we, we started this conversation or this part of the, uh, this question, I guess, with, okay, fertility, pregnancy, what, are, how do we make the soil healthy? Yeah. But everything that you just went over is not just for pregnancy. This is like for medicine for life. This also right. helps you prevent these lifestyle diseases like cardiovascular disease and cancer yep. and autoimmune diseases and everything. It's like, it's not just for pregnancy. Uh, so if you're a man or if you already had kids or whatever time in life that you are, like these are all just foundational principles of being human right. in our current world. Right. Yeah. The, uh, you know, at, at the heart of this conversation is that, um, you can either, and a friend of mine gave me this, gave me this, uh, this analogy. He's like, you can, you ride a mountain bike and you, your tire goes CO2 cartridge. You can pump it up and get home. But if you don't actually fix the flat tire, you just keep buying those expensive cartridges. Yeah. You're just juicing yourself up every time you go on a ride. That is very expensive. And it's one way, but at the, you know, when we consider like when we, the reason I talk so much about pregnancy is that if a young, healthy person, if a person is young and they can't get pregnant, they're not healthy. There are very rare instances in which there's an anatomical or some underlying congenital issue, genetic issue, for example, that pregnancy is not possible, but that's a very, very small percentage of people. Mm -hmm. So women are gifted with a vital sign, which is a predictable monthly bleed. And they should have not even monthly. It's actually 13 per year, which draws into question. Why do we have 12 months? I won't <laughs> even get into that history, but yeah. 13 full moons, 13 bleeds. That's actually how nature intended it. So this is the natural cycle of of, of our, of our, of nature, of, of our environment. So a man doesn't have that. A man thinks he's doing great. Like me and you chase, we ended up in adrenal fatigue without having any clue, but a woman would have noticed, Oh no, my pattern is getting off. Like I'm not having periods as frequently or whatever. And that is a sign that like, Oh, we need to get to the underlying dysfunction. 
So men go their whole life not realizing how broken down they are, whereas women can, can actually have this vital sign visible. And if they're not having a regular predictable bleed, something's going on there. So we should embrace that as an opportunity to explore and ask some hard questions and get that stuff, you know, kind of situated before we start trying to force our bodies to do this incredible thing, which is to grow a baby. Yeah, yeah seriously. Oh, okay. It's, it's um, <clears throat> interesting that a lot of people, you know, they approach pregnancy and, and this is great that they do this, but it's like, okay, I want to try to have a baby. I need to get healthy. Okay. Right. How do I get healthy now? And I can appreciate that to a certain degree. Of course, it's, it's better than the alternative, I suppose. But then what happens after what happens after you get pregnant or after you have the baby, then what, like, is it just back to like, well, well, I guess that was it. Um, so I love your approach of like, really, and, and ours really is, you know, something we talk about on, on every podcast really is developing relationships with these different aspects of our life, with movement, with food, with, um, you know, spirituality, with ourselves, like, you can be eating all the right things and taking all the right supplements. If you're still living in shame every right. day of your life or judgment mm-hmm. or guilt for yourself, that is not helping any, any aspect of you. And so I love that you're really, truly taking a holistic picture. Um, one thing I've heard you talk about in, in several different, um, you know, different podcasts and conversations and just talking with you as a friend, you have a really unique um, way that you look at how our current world and hopefully the, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible in the future, how we support women and what that looks like currently. And, uh, how do you see our current medical system or our current world neglecting women and what happens when we truly support women and and what does that even look like? Wow. That's a great you sent me this question before, and I, I know I wrote something down, but I'm also reading this book called Woman as Healer, which talks about the history of women in the healing space since ancient Sumer. I mean, we're talking thousands of years ago. And um, I don't know if, of any truly matriarchal societies, but at least way before Christianity kind of became the, the sort of default mode for the world's religions, women were, were honored because of their creative process. I mean, they can give birth and we, we honored that as an important, obviously an important attribute of our society. And as we've seen societies rise and fall, we've seen a, a devaluing of women. You know, it happened in Rome. I mean, it's happened in all of the major civilizations. And I think we're actually there now in ours Mm. because you know, fast forward from ancient Sumer where they were polytheistic and they had goddesses and deities that they prayed to for fertility, for the harvest, whatever, because of, of this inherent sense or an innate sense that women are connected to nature. We know that you guys cycle with the moons. Like there was an, there was an acknowledgement and an embracing of that. Like, wow, the power of a woman. And therefore we have powerful female gods, obviously. But then, you know, fast forward, but then we get Christianity. And now we have one single God who's in the figure of a man who is, is not even of earth. He's, he's actually up in the clouds above earth, governing over earth. And so you look at the history of midwifery. I'm working on a, on a, cha- a, a solo cast on this topic. That's why I was re- rereading this book for like the third time, because it's packed full of, of really good information. You can imagine that when the Christian let's just say the different denominations of Christianity through the crusades and everything else took hold. Anybody who was connected to nature was not of the man above in the clouds. Mm -hmm. It was actually a threat 
to the establishment that was developing, which currently is still a part of our political and our religious systems and really the medical industrial complex. So, so what I really wish to see in the new world is for us to re-embrace the power of the divine feminine. And I'm not speaking as some sort of woke neo-feminist. I mean, we are actually doomed if we can't re-imagine how we interface with nature, nature being fully represented in the divine feminine. In the reductive model of medicine, we only look at the things that we can control. And this is a part of this, this sort of monotheistic evolution of our religious uh, doctrines, which is that <clears throat> medicine was born from the mindset that anything that we can control is something worth studying. Mm -hmm. And we know we can't control birth. We know we can't control death. We know that anything we do out there to try to mimic nature falls flat on its ass. This happens in agriculture. This happens in heightened governance. This happens in medicine. So what I would really love for us to see is to take a step back and, and appreciate the role of the divine feminine, the divine masculine. And that is going to require us to get out of the way and to hold space as the divine masculine. And we all have a little bit of it of each. It's not, it's like the homosexuality spectrum. Like nobody is fully into just men or just women, at least very, very few. Like there's moments where you're like, wow, that man is like, I feel something with him, right? But you're still very heterosexual, right? That's yeah. the whole Kinsey report. I won't even get into that. But in, in our exploration of masculine and feminine, we have both of those powers. It's the yin and the yang, the yin being feminine, the yang being masculine. But we've overemphasized masculinity, productivity, control versus the feminine being the receiver, the going with the flow, the, uh, the rhythms of nature. I mean, that has all become the sort of... Uh, the play of witches, you know, it's the immeasurable, it's the connection to nature. It's using the plants, the way that nature delivers them in their whole form, as opposed to synthesizing it in the lab and trying to control it. So for anybody out there, who's curious about this, the way that I, I, I have imagined the masculine is the sides of a mountain. And then there's a river running through and that river is just going to erode and move as the river sees fit. You don't control a river. The only way to to allow a river to do what a river does is to hold the, 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 um, <clears throat> the parameters of the basin to allow her to fully express herself. Mm -hmm. And this is ever more important in how we show up at birth. Hey, homie, if you've listened to the medicine podcast for a while now, you know that Chase and I are extremely selective when it comes to the mushroom products we recommend. This is because after years of researching the mushroom space, we honestly were disappointed to find out that the large majority of these products are diluted and bulked up with grain-based fillers, which led to us creating our own mushroom elixir, Mushy Love Cinnamon Swirl Latte. We were committed to formulating one that is delicious and high quality one that has a clean organic ingredient list, no gut or hormone disruptors, absolutely zero fillers, and a hefty dose of pure medicinal mushrooms. Mushy Love Latte is the result. 
This is a blendable, caffeine-free mushroom elixir with 500 milligrams each of incredible mushrooms, chaga, and tremella. That is at least two to three times more mushrooms than other very popular mushroom brands out there to support your gut health, immunity, skin hydration, and beauty. Oh, and it tastes like a liquid cinnamon roll, y'all. Just blend one to two scoops with your favorite steamed milk and you have a delicious elixir that you can drink any time of day. You can also blend a scoop into your morning coffee as a creamer with a cinnamon swirl twist. To try Mushy Love Latte for yourself, go to getmushylove.com and use the code MEDICINE, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for 10% off your subscription or one-time order. Again, getmushylove.com, use the code MEDICINE. Mushy Love is highest quality mushrooms and highest quality love. Enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's so spot on. That's how we've done everything. We've yeah. taken the feminine that is water and we've put it in a in a kitty swimming pool. <laughs> and that's how we've contained it. Well, there's no life in that water. <laughs> you that's know, so right. Yeah. And then you can't like like you're saying, you can't you can't grab and control directly water the feminine, the liquid, it slips through your fingers. It has to be guided. It's penetrate. You know, you must penetrate the feminine, right? But, but in a way that, that guides it. So it's yeah. such that the power of it can be channeled. Mm-hmm. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It, that language is tricky because then it's like, oh, we're guiding the feminine. I, I, I know that you were questioning that as you were saying it, but in nature, the mountain asks nothing of the river. The river asks nothing of the mountain. Right. They are working in, in yes. concert yeah. with the creation, yeah, to mold the landscape. And that's the new world is going to come from a balance between those yeah. two incredible forces. But we are so focused on control and the masculine that you know even men we show up and we just want to fix it. You there's nothing right. to fix right. in your in your female's life. There is absolutely nothing for you to fix. You just need to hold space for her to do the magic. Yeah. That comes only through the lens of the feminine. Yeah. Mm, mm, I love perfectly that. Put. So, so we, we are living in the reality that this world will exist, this more beautiful yeah. world. What does that actually look like? How is that? Um, what is the expression of everything that you just explained and the lack thereof? How does that change? Like, um, what is that different expression? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, let's, so, so I think that, I think the way that it would look is that instead of asking, what can I do to fix the problem? The question would be, what is in the way of this person's journey or healing mm-hmm. and removing those barriers? The term that comes to mind is salutogenesis, which is really related to the innate wisdom of the body to heal. If you cut your finger, your body goes back to normal. Yeah. But we don't take that approach to virtually anything. We forget that your dying or your birthing um, is not a lack of medical intervention. Like these are natural processes. And we know that when a person has a hospital-based birth, for example, that we intervene more and more and more. And now we've created a situation where medicine actually is required if the mom and baby are going to survive. Versus if you actually experience and sit with a natural physiologic undisturbed birth, you see the roar of the feminine come through. Mm. And all that we're here to do is to hold space for that. 
and everything else works out. Everything down to how a woman positions her hips, her legs, her torso is helping the baby in commune with the baby, helping the baby get through that pelvic canal in order to be embodied with these more subtle energetic bodies. But as soon as we numb her out of that experience, as soon as we start intervening in that experience, we naturally are throwing things off downstream. We just aren't looking for them in the literature. Sure. That's why women feel so traumatized in this is that this was a natural thing. And then you forced the plant to go this way when the plant was actually going to go this way. Mm-hmm. Now we've got a plant that's, it's a, it's a, it's a plant, but it, it hasn't been growing in the way that, that the, the natural fields of our, of our planet and the cosmos would have otherwise intended. Yeah. So it's less control. It's more supporting the natural processes and only intervening when we absolutely have to. Yeah. Yeah. I no. love that. That's, that's the, when I imagine myself, when we were on your podcast, you asked this question, like, what is your ideal birth scenario? And it was a really fun topic and question to explore in my own mind, just because I hadn't really gone there in, in exact detail. And that's exactly how I picture my birth scenario. If, if we, if we choose that, um, is letting my body and, and trusting my body and not just in pregnancy, and birth, but also I've spent years of listening to my body and responding yeah. to my body in love so that when I get to pregnancy, it's not a new language that I have to learn. It's just an allowing of my body's innate intelligence and right. you describe it so beautifully. Oh, <laughs> well, um, I think about all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I'm, I'm communicating it. Okay. Yeah. You know, I definitely want to pull a little further on the, on the sort of like the place of the masculine thread, if you will, and specifically how it pertains to pregnancy and birth. Um, There's obviously some male oaf-like archetypes out there as it pertains to supporting the birth process. I mean, literally like jokes from guys about like, oh, I had my catcher's mitt ready to go. And, you know, I'm watching sports and eating popcorn as this is going on. And like, whatever, that's fine. and, and, And funny, I guess, for a minute. But like, I think we're ready to step into like the proper placement of masculinity as it pertains to the, to the pregnancy and the birth process. What does that look like in an ideal world? You know, what's the, what's the most vital placement of masculinity in the birth and uh, pregnancy process? I think one of the greatest consequences of the reductive model that we've developed where, Hey, you know, if you're going to cut into a person, you can't think of them as a person, you think of them as a meat suit. Mm-hmm. And, and that actually, that mentality after Galen's time and into the sort of Renaissance period, we started reimagining with our monotheistic doctrines that, oh, the spirit and the mind are separate from the body. That allows us to cut, to, to, uh, to dissect a body. Otherwise that would have been sacrilege because if the soul is going to be tethered to this physical corpus, then we can't possibly dissect into it. That's, that's, that's ludicrous. And so fast forward, now we have birth and those, those analogies and those, little, and those little quips that people use about the catcher's mitt and this and that. It, it, it treats the body as if this is just an organ system that's going to spit out this, this human, which yeah. to me is not even really possible to put into a sentence, you know, in, into, constructively into a sentence. So, so when we show up in birth, and women know this, they have an intuitive spirit about this. Like they're oftentimes talking to the baby in utero. And they're communicating with the baby and the baby will even tell them what their name is. The baby will tell mm-hmm. them I'm okay. I'm not okay. But because we can't measure that, it ends up being something that we can't actually act on. And we love acting. We just love getting our hands in there. 
So as a father, having been, you know, in a birth, even in our house, the first important thing to remember is that there's nothing for you to do here to fix anything. Just stand back and hold space. But more importantly, I really want you to pay attention to what's happening. You're witnessing a transformation of spirit on the part of you. We don't like, we're distracted so much that we forget about like what's going on in there. There's the transformation of spirit on the behalf of a pregnant woman going from the archetype of maiden to mother. And this human being is emerging into the earth school for the very first time. When we come to the, the table with a fix-it attitude, that's how we develop this idea where the baby comes out, we dry the baby off, we check all the vital signs, we give a shot in the foot, we put goop in the eyes, we get mom all cleaned up, we put a diaper on her, and then we wrap this little baby up like a tortilla, like a little burrito, and pop it on her chest. And that's a job well done. Well, that misses the incredible elegance and, and uh, rapture that comes in that first moment when a baby comes out. So I don't know if it's so much a role for men, but it is an opportunity for men to connect with the power of the feminine. Mm. And because we've stopped paying attention, it's easy for us to be like, okay, healthy mom, healthy baby, bye. And yeah. we walk out of the room. But if you're sitting there and you're really present and you watch what's going on and you just, the baby takes its first cry and you see it on men's faces, but they don't want to admit it. The reason men faint so often in the labor and delivery room is because they are being blown apart by something that they had never even conceived of. It's not a catcher mitt. You're saying all of that in order to make this a little more easily digestible, but there is nothing like watching a baby emerge from your wife's vagina and then land on her chest and she starts crying. There is, that is the learning curve. So if men could show up in that way and just hold space and just pay attention and be present with that, which we're not used to doing. It's uncomfortable to be present. That's where we start to shift from this dominant masculine society to a society in which we actually can embrace what the feminine brings into our world, which is the creative process of the cosmos. And it's driven by love. Mm. That's where it's at. Oh, come on. Preach. I don't know how anyone (laughs) listen. I honestly don't know how anyone could listen to that and not say, hell yeah, that's the experience that I want. But a lot of times as you speak to so often is, you know, we're, we're not informed of, of this option of this, you know, all of the aspects of that go into informed consent. Like, I feel like it's not actually happening because a lot of women don't even know that what you just explained is an option for birth. I certainly didn't 10 years ago, you know, you only see it depicted in really in, in hospitals and you see a home birth from 200 years ago, maybe. Um, but it, I just, I can't even, I can't think of the situation where a woman hears what you just said and is like, Nope, not for me. I mean, (laughs) well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we our our mythologies are really, really strong. I mean, we've been conditioned to like, we've been saying for somebody else to have the answer for us. But I think the greatest myth that we've told ourselves is that hospitals are a place for safety and, and, and they do, they, they, they advertise safety through the lens of control. So I know we were going to get into some of these specific, you know, questions about, about the healthcare system and, and how I might approach different issues, but even the, where we give birth is a really important question mm-hmm. because we have the myth of safety that if you just pay your insurance company, the premium and your co-payments and your deductible and all that other stuff before it actually kicks in another conversation for, conversation <laughs> for another time, you go to the hospital 
you're going to be taken care of and you're going to be safe. And again, safety is a, is a surrogate for control. The more we control it, the safer you'll be. The problem is that there's a lot of iatrogenic death in hospitals, meaning something done by the hospital that killed you that otherwise wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of medication errors, meaning we're giving the wrong dose, we're giving the wrong pill, we're giving it by IV instead of IM or by, as opposed to oral. All sorts of things get mixed up because nurses are overworked, they're underslept and they're underpaid. And doctors got too many patients too. Like they go in and they review everything. They come up with a plan before even meeting the patient. So our system doesn't really do safe. It keeps you from dying. I mean, that's really the extent of it. And if you go in the relatively healthy, you might come out relatively sick. So when we, um, when we consider just how much money that we're spending on the healthcare system, what we're getting is the, is the illusion of safety. But if we take a step back, and we actually look at data from around the world where home birth is still relatively accessible. There is no difference in outcomes based on the metrics, even the basic metrics of blood loss, fetal loss, mm. mater you know, maternal mortality. There is no difference between the home birth and the hospital birth. One of the big issues is that because there's such a disconnect between the home birth community and the hospital community, midwives at home who would otherwise have transferred at you know, day one of labor they may wait a whole another day to hope that something changes in order to avoid going into the hospital where they're going to perhaps be, you know, uh, scorned. They're going to be insulted. They're going to be shamed. The women that are there to get, you know, safety are shamed. And, um, and so they wait too long. And then whenever that transfer should have happened, doesn't happen. And now we're actually in a pickle. So this is not to say, by the way, again, I'm a patient advocate. This is not to say everybody should have a home birth, but if you feel safer at home than you do in the hospital, the chances are based on the, what we know about the physiology of labor and the impacts of stress and fear on physiology, that you're probably actually better off at home with a midwife who's, who's trained, who's apprenticed and has a good relationship with a nearby hospital. That's the ideal. Um, I also understand why people are having free births because they don't want to even step foot near a hospital. And if a midwife is going to recommend that and take them off of their, their sort of intuitive path of having a baby, then they just don't want that at all. But the underlying reason that people are having more home births and free births is because they don't buy into this, this slogan of safety for all in the hospital, because they see what happens there, especially for young, uh, for young, healthy people. Um, so it's not for everybody, but home birth is generally way safer and supportive of patient autonomy and respectful of informed consent and respectful of a right, the right to refuse treatment than anybody practicing in the hospital system. Mm. Mm, that is a major, mm. I feel like myth uh, of our culture and society. Um, you know, the, the women that have home births are sometimes shown or depicted in movies or, or wherever, like, oh, they're just, you know, another hippie that, you know, is af afraid right. of science or whatever, like you, science hater. And uh, what you just explained couldn't be further from the truth, obviously. And, and that's where I, again, going back to ideal birth scenario, I've never once pictured myself in a hospital setting, um, yeah. whether that's a, a, a birthing center or our home, whatever it is. Um, but I've just always known like, no, nope, hospital's not for me. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't shame anyone for whatever they, whatever, like you said, if you feel safer in a hospital, it's probably for you if you'll feel safer at home, which I do. 
it's probably going to work out in my favor. And I, I would love to continue kind of this myth busting because mm. you are, um, so well educated, um, in, in, in addition to just your commitment to honesty and real patient adv advocacy, we knew that you would be the perfect person to go into some of these controversial topics and maybe bust some myths and misconceptions. Um, and just spoiler for the audience on, you know, on this episode and every other episode of the medicine, we are, we do not shy away from having difficult or controversial conversations when we can bring love and consciousness to the conversation, which of course you always do. So there might be some triggers in here. Um, if you're listening and like, Oh, that's not what I believe. Just stay calm and have an open mind and, and just be open to the conversation as, as uh, Nathan shares. But so you, you shared, you know, some myths and misconceptions about home birth and hospital birth. Is there anything around those two, as far as myths that you would want to share before we move to the next one? I think the epidural conversation is really important, you know, granted the risk of something really, really bad happening with an epidural, which by the way, is when you sit, you hunch forward, we find L3 to L5 that's in your lumbar spine. We find a nice open spot there between the vertebrae. There's a big gap, which is why we use that spot. I don't do it, but the anesthesiologists do it. I tried to learn how to do it. And then my residency program was like, that's like, don't do that. Just do your job. And so I wanted to actually be really good at epidurals, but I never got there. Um, but what they do is they put some, uh, basically a cocaine derivative, which you, you know, you recognize as lidocaine. Um, they usually use lidocaine, if I recall, or bupivacaine or marcaine. There's all these different canes. And then they add an opioid like fentanyl to that. And it goes into the fluid that surrounds your spinal cord. And it numbs the nerve roots that carry pain from your extremities up to the brain. So you can't feel anything below roughly your xiphoid process. You're pretty numb. The risks, you know, would be like infection or bleeding inside that space. Those are all super low risks. So the anesthesiologists are correct there. The likelihood of you hitting it, it would be like trying to pop a balloon with a blunt pen in a room. Like you can't damage the spinal cord with a, with one of these very, very fine gauge needles. I'm sure you could, but it would be extremely unlikely. So that's what they'll tell you in the hospital. The other part of that though is, and this gets into the home birth process, women have shorter labors. The reason that women generally don't tear as much, you know, those lacerations I talked about is because they will, they're in a, they're in attunement with what to position they need to be in in order for the baby to get through this tight passage. Mm -hmm. So if you're numb from your xiphoid process down, your legs are useless. They used to do walking epidurals. They don't do those anymore in most hospitals. <clears throat> and that's where you have the numbness, but you can still use your legs. This is a hard, a strong enough blockade that you don't even have motor function in your legs. So you can't move. You can't get into those natural positions, all fours, sideline, runner's position. You can't do any of those positions because your legs don't work and you can't feel anything in order to guide those movements. So you have a greater, you have, you have a much lesser chance of tears. You have a much lesser chance of dystocias, which is when like the shoulders get caught. You have shorter labors because those movements actually help to facilitate the process. So, you know, what the literature says is that an epidural slows down labor on average by one hour it could be a whole day. I mean, it really, really depends on mm. the person. So we give this, these generalizable statements to people. And, um, and for some people, it is really helpful. You've been in labor for two days at home. Nothing's changing. Let's get you some sleep so we can give you some energy to, to get back to the process. But for the vast majority of people who have a birth without a, an epidural, they're like, that was way faster and way easier than when I was in the hospital with an epidural. So 
that's I'm generalizing here, but that's uh, I think one myth about the epidural thing. Um, it's more than just the infection rates and all of that. That actually is disruptive to the the woman's movement and the dancing and swaying and bouncing and and child's pose and all of that, that actually helps facilitate labor. Yeah. I, um, I, we have a friend, Marissa, who's an incredible doula and she's had four kids of her own. And, um, she says this motion is lotion when it comes to birth. Yeah. And I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love um, that too. Okay. So next one, circumcision. Oh, we'll just be brief with this one. It is, it is genital mutilation period. Yeah. Um, I'm circumcised for everybody out there wondering and if we had a little boy, we would have had to have, we would have had to have a hard conversation because I probably did 200 of those in residency. It was a part of our job. We would put sugar on their tongue and they would go into outer space. Imagine your first sour patch kid. And then we strap mm -hmm. their arms and legs down. You put these big clamps and then you cut around the bell of the clamp and cut off all of the excess foreskin just below the head of the glands, the, 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 the crown of the glands, the, what you would see as the mushroom top on the penis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And um, of course, when the penis is erect later in life, you can't tell the difference, but there were kids in school when I was younger, when circumcision was like all the rage that they would have like, you know, the skin that comes, you know, kind of comes, extends over the glands and they would get made fun of for it. So there was these societal pressures to match yeah. what daddy has, so to speak. And I probably had that mentality at one point, but after having done so many of them, I don't, I won't ever do one again, first off. But I also want people to really understand there is absolutely zero benefit to circumcising your child. It gets a little dirty under there. You just pull the skin back and clean it, just like your, just like your your ass crack or your your armpit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, I think about that all the time. We're currently in the middle of watching this uh, documentary called American Circumcision because yeah. we want to yeah. know. We want to prepare ourselves and have this tough conversation before it comes if we, you know, ever have a son and they're talking about, you know, someone who is pro circumcision, they have all yeah. both sides on this documentary. They're talking about the, you know, the cleanliness and oh, it can get infected and this and that. And I'm like, have you ever like taken a look at a vagina? Do you, have you ever noticed how many folds right. yeah. and petals right. Yeah. Right. and places right. and crevices there are like that to me is a, a laughable argument. Yeah. It's like, yeah. we teach little girls how to clean themselves. Why is that any different for a boy? Do we think that they can't yeah. handle that as a, as totally. a little child? Like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's laughable. And then once you dive into like what you just explained and, and uh, seeing it done and hearing that there is no real benefit to it, it's, it's hard for people to swallow. It's I think, hard especially I think to for sit and understand. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's, really been like, wait, what? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah. You I know, just, doing that. yeah. Why? I have a hard time believing that a perfect little human body needs a major surgery, like on day two of their life, you yeah. know, if, if, if everything else is healthy. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Why mess with nature? I mean, yeah. there's foreskin there for a reason. I mean, men who have it, we don't have a good comparison between the two, but people who have had foreskin and then have it removed later in life say that they have less sensation, but I mean, right. who knows that's actually beyond the point, right? Mm -hmm. If what I always say is the burden of proof lies to that person who wants to deviate from nature. And we have absolutely no evidence to support circumcision. Yep. I have no idea how we got there, but the guy who made that film, American circumcision, I think he's actually a Jewish rabbi, if oh, I'm not wow. mistaken. Okay. So I, I, I may, I may be wrong, but I think that the, the primary uh, mover and shaker who got that film going is somebody who had done so many uh, was it called a bris, you know, where you cut the foreskin off uh, in yeah. Jewish 
Jewish tradition, but yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a that's a a good question. That's an easy one for me, though. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, you know, another one, obviously quite charged. Um, but would love to hear your perspective. Would be abortion. Oh yeah, there, there's the uh, the big the capital A. Um, big yeah, one right so now. as a patient, as a as an advocate for women, I am fully on board with autonomy. Um, for me, it is not my belief system that is supposed to be guiding how I practice, how I counsel. Otherwise, it would be called coercion. And um, I want to emphasize that having an abortion is probably one of the hardest decisions for many people. I think there is a small percentage of people who are also like, oh, I don't want this baby. Let's just get this. Let's just let's just kill it. I mean, like that's what people people have this mentality. And maybe even if that was 50 percent, there are very, very important reasons for us to have access to abortion, whether it be medical or procedural abortion, even up to the second trimester. And I did a whole podcast episode about this recently, which, um, you know, looking through the lens of, let's say something like anencephaly, that's where the baby's brain doesn't develop. It is completely incompatible with life. And if it survives in utero up to term and, and you give birth to this baby, the baby's only going to live for a couple hours up to maybe a couple months, depending on how severe it is. So they've got a brainstem that will help them breathe and do the vital functions, but it's not sustainable and it's going nowhere. The baby doesn't grow. The brain is not there. There's, there's a lot missing. So if that diagnosis were to happen at that mid, mid gestation formal anatomy screen, many women would say, I think I would just like to terminate. I don't know what I would do in that situation, but it's not my body. It's not what, it's not my decision to do. And I know that anybody, we have close friends who are in exactly that situation, which is why that, I tell that story. We shed so many tears with them. Mm. It was one of the hardest things that they've ever gone through because they were trying to get pregnant for like three years. And that was the news they got. Mm. And so, you know, people say things like, you can always have another baby or whatever else. Like on the other side of that, we need to hold space for how hard this decision is. Yeah. And I think you're doing the right thing. It doesn't matter what you think. It's not your, it's not your position. Mm -hmm. So I do think that, you know, obviously up to like four to six weeks, I think everybody should have access to that. I've heard stories about people that are like, they're doing abortions in the third trimester. I've never seen it. I've never met anybody in my wide range of travels who have supported that, you know, infanticide, just letting the baby die and starve. I've heard of that. Like I've, people have made those claims. I have never once ever seen or heard that. And I'm a pretty out there sort of, sort of guy. So um, why don't I stop there? What questions? Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's. I could go on and on about I, this one. I'm I'm so grateful for your your yeah. transparency and and honesty. It's it's so helpful as we navigate all of us navigate this. Yeah, and something I I listened to that abortion episode that you put out because it was in the heat of everybody. You know, one more thing for people to be divided on. And yeah. I loved the way that you framed it. I think it was in your intro where you said both sides of this conversation, whether you are pro-choice or pro-life is coming to the conversation from a foundation of love, but yeah. the other side does not see that for the pro-choice. That person is saying, Oh, I, we, we want to support the woman and her, her ability to choose what's right for her body and her situation and her family. Let's support women. And the other side of the conversation pro-life, they are, we love babies and life and let's do everything that we can possible to make sure that this baby does come into, you know, saving a life basically. Right. And it's not seen that way. You're right. seen 
from the other side's perspective as potentially a monster or evil or crazy. Right. And I just loved the way that you framed that. And it really opens up the conversation that is so nuanced. It's not black and white, just like every other damn thing in life. There is no black and white. It is, there's a lot of gray area. And uh, so I, I just wanted to thank you for that because it hit me and it was like, oh my God, that's so true. It's yeah. love at the foundation of both, but we're not seeing that. Yeah. And, and it, I thank you for that, Mimi. I'm glad you, <clears throat> you listened to the episode as well, because, you know, you put yourself out there and you get a lot of hate mail for those types oh, of, that type of messaging. Yeah. Um, and the big elephant in the room as well is that if you want to force every woman to, to have a, a pregnancy, you know, or to have a baby resulting from a pregnancy, whether it was an intended or not, number one men need to step up to the plate and figure out what they're going to do about where they put their cum. The other thing is we as a society can't be shaming women for everything from having a nipple out while they're breastfeeding their baby to shaming them for being a single mom or shaming them for not being a single mom and just being a, being a quote, just a housewife. Right. Like we have completely devalued women in our society. And now it's also on you women to, to be forced to care for a baby that either you you maybe didn't even intend to have with your intimate partner. Maybe you already have five kids and the condom broke. I mean, we just don't know. Yeah. Or yeah. perhaps that small percentage of people who were raped and now have a, uh, you know, a pregnancy they have to be confronted by. And of course, these other women who are going to be forced to have a baby that has no compatibility with life. So if we're not willing to live in nuance, then we, and we put everything into a binary of right and wrong, then all of those women I just mentioned slip through the cracks and they're left looking around for some support for our society and our society is like, deal with it. You're just a woman, go deal with your womenly things. Mm-hmm. And that also needs to be a part of the conversation if we're gonna be really truly um, bring a, all of our love into the conversation, we need to really step back and figure out why is it that so many women are, are having, are, are feeling compelled to, to do a variety of things that don't feel right to them, but have been imposed upon them by legislators and outspoken men and other women in the society and in our society. Hey homie, did you hear that Organifi, the creators of the best and most delicious green juice in the world, now has a crisp apple version? You guys, it is so dang good. I love the original green juice, but this may be my new favorite Organifi product. The apple taste isn't too strong. It's just the right amount. So Green Juice Crisp Apple has all the same benefits of the original green juice with a new crisp twist and refreshing taste and only two grams of sugar using organic whole apple sources handpicked from our home state of Washington. Holler! I drink green juice on a daily basis because the clinical dose of ashwagandha really helps support my body's stress response and cortisol levels. And you know what they say, you're either making stress hormones or sex hormones, not both. So green juice really is sexy. To grab your new sexy green juice, crisp apple, go to Organifi.com and remember to use the code MIMIFIT, M-I-M-I-F-I-T at checkout for a hefty 20% off on all your Organifi orders. Cheers and love, boo. Oh, I'm so glad you exist and you are an advocate for women. Uh, We just need like a million more of you and we'll be good. 
Yeah. Um, you got to clone me or something. Yeah. Right. right. Um, <laughs> next one here, ultrasounds. Yeah, this is a really, um, the ultrasound conversation is really, really tricky because uh, what we always talk about is ionizing radiation. Like if you put, stand next to a microwave, you like put your face on the microwave and just fry yourself for a couple of years, you're probably not going to do well. Same with like being a truck driver and you're just getting, you know, selective ultraviolet light coming through a window your whole life and half of your face looks like it's falling off and the other half, half looks youthful. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of reasons for us to be considered about radiation, but the, the, the evidence that is out there that is governing our guidelines about ultrasound use, specifically in pregnancy, is that it's non-ionizing radiation. It's not like being hit with an x-ray, and they're right. The problem is that we have plenty of other evidence outside of pregnancy that suggests that when we use continuous waveforms, specifically with these high-frequency Dopplers, that it actually does disrupt mm. embryologic development. And this is in petri dishes. This is in animal and rodent studies. Um, and something a little bit more woo-woo is to consider if there is a greater field governing why trees grow in this way and branch in certain ways, et cetera. That plant is inherently intelligent as to where every single cell is supposed to go as it's developing from a seed, which is the same as an embryo in our, in our uterus for the, for the most part, to a trillion gajillion celled organism that is now hovering over my house. So inside the uterus, <clears throat> If you consider that two gametes, the cell from the man, the cell from the woman, the egg and the woman, sperm and the man, they meet, they create an embryo, a zygote as we call it, that divides and that divides and those divide and, they, and then now you've got a billion cells. While that's happening, and you can see this in real time on a time lapse of like a zebrafish embryo developing, all of these billions of cells are somehow figuring out where they're supposed to go in order to form this zebrafish. They're not, they're not like chatting over coffee. Like, I don't know how they know where they're going, but it's this, that's the miracle of childbirth of growing a baby from nothing. And suddenly, bam, you've got organ systems and in functioning immune, uh, immune system and a nervous system. And you've got all these chambers of the heart that somehow miraculously formed all from one stinking embryo. Mm-hmm. If you look at chymatics, which I think is very fascinating, either in a glob of water or on a tin plate, you put a bunch of salt granules on the tin plate and vibrate the plate at various frequencies, you will get a completely different but beautiful geometric pattern. And those salt granules for damn sure are not intelligent. I mean, maybe they are depending on your, your, your sort of worldview, but those little salt granules seem to just go somewhere on the plate in order to form these incredible patterns. Well, if, a, if vibrating a tin plate with salt on it can explain how we can get these various patterns and you'll get the same pattern at 528 no matter what it's this mm-hmm. there's the 528 pattern it's it's quite impressive if you then go into the 3d and you look at this zebra fish you see those little salt granules that are make up the zebra fish going to wherever they're supposed to go based on who knows why you can call it god's spirit you can talk, call it the field you can call it whatever but there's something impressive there and if we're going to argue that there's an intelligent nature uh, uh, an intelligence in nature which i certainly do and we can even say there's some spiritual something that's happening here. Could it be that shooting high frequency waves at this, just like with that tin plate, could perhaps give us a different geometric pattern? And the evidence outside of the body says yes. So for anybody, anybody out there who is pregnant, getting an ultrasound is fine, but getting an ultrasound every single time you see your OBGYN in that first trimester is probably something we should be putting the, putting the, <clears throat> the kibosh on. It, it heats up tissue, 
it heats up those cells and it is naturally interfering with whatever field is governing where those cells go. Mm. Mm. So if you're working with me and I'm like, I want as little interruption, I don't, I, I want as little intervention as possible. Just do the bare minimum, what is absolutely necessary. How would you advise me? The first question would be, how sure are you know, or how sure are you about when this baby was conceived? And that can be like, how regular are your cycles? Or like, man, we had sex the last time was five weeks ago when we were in <clears throat> Peru. That's when we had, I mean, that's when we conceived almost certainly because you have normal periods and you haven't had a period now for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. That would be, you know, if, if that's the case, we don't need the ultrasound to confirm how far along you are, but it does help us confirm and put you under the 28 day gestational age wheel, which is only is relevant if your 28 day cycles are exactly 28 days every single time. Um, and then also like, let's say that you've got a pregnancy, but you're bleeding a lot, or <clears throat> you're a smoker with a history of gonorrhea, et cetera. There's a higher risk for ectopic pregnancy, or if you have an IUD in there, and you got pregnant, it's, it's possible higher. It's a higher chance than otherwise with that IUD in place or history of PID like gonorrhea that it's going to implant in the tube. That's called an ectopic. That could be a medical emergency. About 20% will resolve on their own. But if it keeps growing and ruptures the tube, you'll get catastrophic bleeding inside the abdomen. And now we have an emergency. So if for some reason, let's say you had two prior ectopic pregnancies and now you're pregnant again, we just want to confirm it's in the uterus. That would be a, a good use for that. But many, many women, especially in the midwifery community, get zero ultrasounds. And we just wait and see what happens. Mm. And um, <clears throat> There's 8 billion people here on the planet for a reason. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. Um, you know, the next one to talk about, and, and obviously I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm, I'm looking at any traditional procedure and just questioning it um, and, and wondering if there's more that, that we should be aware of or know about. And so I've thought this about, you know, vasectomies and like, Hey, it seems like a lot of people are doing this have been for some time, but am I missing something? Is this one of those that's actually okay? Are we, are we potentially, is there another approach to this? And then, and then, you know, maybe tube tying as well. Yeah. So we, I told you guys that we have a, I have a vasectomy scheduled at the end of the month and I think I'm going to cancel it because I've been mm -hmm. having some real doubts about what this means to be blocking up my reproductive tract. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's, it's blocking it, but it's not tying them. We don't actually tie them. We actually remove a, a chunk from the vas deferens, which carry okay. healthy sperm up to the urethra and, and then you ejaculate. Um, so the evidence about vasectomy, of course, now I've, I've been diving into it is that, you know, low risk of, of bleeding, like a hematoma forming under the skin, low risk of infection, low risk of failure. They're like 99.9% .9 effective. Um, there's very little pain. It's a pinch. And then they, that's what they say. We always say that it's a pinch, but it's probably more than just a pinch, but it's relatively pain-free and you've got a couple of weeks of recovery. And then that's that, no more babies. The problem is it's, it's, it's irreversible the way that they do it. There are some doctors that will try to put it back together, but it's not a guarantee. And you're, you're holding back some fluid, something that's being created by the body that is meant to be expelled. So energetically, something doesn't sit well with me and I'm mm -hmm. almost sure I'm not gonna do it at this point. But in that same conversation with my wife, the burden is now on her through fertility awareness methods to be darn sure when I can and can't come inside of her. Mm. And I don't like coming inside of her anyways, because she doesn't like having that. But hey, if we get carried away and we're having great sex and it just happens, mm. we don't have to worry about it with a vasectomy. Now, perhaps she's during, during her fertile window and then she's going to be faced again with the conversation around abortion. Do we have a third baby? 
is this baby 10 years younger than our, our current seven month old? It's unlikely that we'd be getting pregnant at 47, but you never know. So there is the certain security and it's like the men should stand up and do their part. And this came up in the business of birth control when I was on the panel in Austin. Yes, we should be doing our part. But part of that is that we've suffered long enough as women and now men should suffer too. And I don't like that language because nobody should be suffering. Like yeah. It's not like we're, we're keeping tally on who's suffered the most. Women have definitely outsuffered us. There's no way we're going to catch up. You guys have us <laughs> outnumbered, Mimi. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And so, um, so the same conversation happens with tube tying, you know, and, and for women who are de definitely seem to be a little bit more in touch with and, and attuned to their energetics. I've, I, on one, one occasion when I was after residency, I did a, a sterilization procedure for a woman who had been consented by another doctor. She was ready to go. I showed up and I did the procedure and I removed the tubes, but she was under the impression we were tying the tubes, but that's not really something we do anymore. You know, it's actually okay. removing the tube decreases your risk of ovarian cancer because they're thought to be derived from the tubes. Got it. If you're not going to use them, why not, instead of taking a piece out, let's not, and we don't clip anymore because they're, they fall off and end up elsewhere in the abdomen. Let's just remove the tubes that broke her heart that she didn't have her tubes anymore. Mm. So on one hand, men need to step up on the other hand, these surgical irreversible procedures they come with a cost. And that's, sure. I think, part of the, the conversation for us. So while Stephanie's really starting to track her cycles, we just can't have sex. And if we do, we need to use a barrier method um, because she is determined based on all of the information out there now about hormonal, hormonal contraception to not be on either an IUD or any hormonal contraception, especially the pill. Yeah, so same. it's a really, really tricky conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is, there is no easy answer. Nuance. Uh, in, in the, right. In yeah. the space of, of birth control, for sure. Yeah. No, it's, that's super helpful. And, and similarly, energetically, I'm like, man, the more I, the more I lean into this space, I'm like spiritually, like, is there something here? This is a, this is a life process. Yeah. And is there yeah. something just obscure about interfering with that. So yeah, no, no, I, I really, really, really appreciate your insight. We've talked a lot about fertility um, already, but like, I, I personally just have some, some very specific questions yeah. I hear about it in kind of the, I, I'm, I'm complete bro scienced out. Like I'm, I'm a master's in the university of bro science, <laughs> which is the most dangerous thing you can possibly do. Uh, so I, I want to, I really want to speak specifically about like, Fertility. I mentioned, like I've been through my own, you know, hormone challenges, um, and you hear various, you know, protocols and modalities for, of course, testosterone and growth hormone, but then like fertility as well. And it's it's coming into more of my um, awareness just because I'm looking at 32 years old, and I'm like, hey, are we going to have kids in the next few years? Uh, do we want kids? What can I be proactively doing from a from a lifestyle and protocol perspective to support this? And I've heard theories, right, like. Um, icing your balls, um, red light therapy, but then like herbal supplementation, what's kind of the, the starter pack for fertility, uh, supporting protocols and lifestyle patterns, you know, which we already mentioned some of them, but, but what else, what else could be, could be legit? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that the conversation around, um, I'm going to try to look up something here for you real quick. Um, the, I think that the conversation around uh, fertility goes just beyond the the um, the like the, the hormones and the and the whatever you know 
serum lab values or whatever else. I think right. that's an important part of it. But there's also this this area of conscious conception. I think that's really helpful. And I start my my clients off with this, which is when you get pregnant, you can do this consciously by inviting in the soul, the spirit of this baby, right? So that spirit baby's out there. I mean, and this is not these are not my ideas. These are borrowed from a variety of traditions and many really really great books that are out there. But if you can imagine that you and your partner need to be in the right place energetically, you need to you know, really be connecting because that baby, if that baby's looking for you, they're looking for you to bring them into a life of, of, of love and light. And that, you know, in many partnerships where both people are working these, you know, jobs that are just keeping them so busy and they're timing it, like it's time to have sex, boom, 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 done. Let's go back to doing our thing. If I was the spirit of a baby, I would be like, I don't, I don't know if that's the life I want to go into, right? Like that's the yeah. notion of conscious conception. Yes. People get pregnant accidentally. Yes. People don't even think about it. But I will say that whenever people go to the fertility clinic and they have a consultation with somebody and they're so stressed out about it, we got to get pregnant yesterday. Um, they leave the consultation, handing that responsibility, the burden over to somebody else. And then bam, they don't even end up back in the clinic because they just magically conceived after mm -hmm. years of trying, after years of biohacking. Mm -hmm. So there is an element of that. And I won't go further there because then people are like, but what about rape? And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. There is still some mechanics there that happen. And you know, we, it's neither here nor there in this conversation from the standpoint of, of your, of, of your question, Chase, the first question I have for people is why aren't you getting pregnant? And 40 to 50% of the time, it actually falls to the man. We used to consider about 150 million sperm, healthy sperm. And we're talking, they're well-formed one flagella. They're not spinning circles. They're going the looking for that egg. You look at it under a microscope and we would see a pile of them. Now we're seeing about a fifth of that, and we still consider it normal. But just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. Right. So worldwide, we've got a decrease in fertility uh, amongst men, or vir virility is the word I use, or fecundity in women. Fecundity is the likelihood that you're going to get pregnant on any specific cycle. And I think it's somewhere around 20% for like a 35-year-old, uh, probably, probably like a 25-year-old, actually. And as you get older, the likelihood goes you know, down for the woman but there's also the male that we have to think about. So on all top of all the things I just already talked about with the, the quote biohacking and the functional medicine and all the things we can do mm -hmm. to, from a lifestyle standpoint for women, for the men, um, I recommend a couple of things. A lot of men are doing a lot of saunaing at high temperatures. The only data that we have about sauna use and, and sperm health, let's say, is that is from Scandinavia. And they found that men that are in high temperature saunas for multiple times per week actually have a decreased sperm count and motility compared to um, non-sauna users. Then you also asked about red light therapy. And the red light therapy, the evidence that I was able to find is that there have been a, you know, several small studies, but red light therapy, which has been popularized outside of even sauna use, is going to have some sort of metabolic effect at all tissue levels. But sure. specifically when it's, when it's you know, hitting the testicles, we are seeing an improvement in sperm count and motility, but I wouldn't recommend people go straight to that if they haven't gotten the bases right. covered. Right. Cold therapy for the balls um, is kind of an interesting question. And the, the problem with it is that the testicles have this muscular, I can't even remember the name, but it was this like strap of muscle that, that will contract when you're cold, keeping the, the testicles closer to the body and it will relax 
when you're warm and you know exactly what I'm talking about, Chase. Oh, yeah. You probably oh, yeah. Know yeah. Um, that when you're hot outside, you know, your, your testicle, the, 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 the scrotum gets long and loose because it's trying to cool the testicles off by getting away from your core temperature. Yeah. And so the opposite happens when you're in cold by cooling them. I don't know if we necessarily can say for certain that that would speed up the process, but definitely heating it from the sauna standpoint will, will sort of <clears throat> retard the process, so to speak of developing healthy and, and plentiful sperm. Um, and then other than that, I mean, really it goes back to the nutrition. You know, the yeah. one thing I get all of my clients on, even if they're like his hey, sport, normal sperm or whatever, like they did that one test and they just happened to get like a, a decent number, but could we get that higher? Could we improve the likelihood? The one thing I get every people eating, everybody eating is oysters. So oh. oysters are loaded with vitamin D, copper, zinc, manganese, protein, um, omega threes. And that will invariably improve the quality of your sperm and the number. Got it. And Done. that's great for men and women. Yeah. Shellfish are amazing. There's also a lot of taurine, which is this sort of underappreciated nutrient. I talk a lot about that with Lily Nichols on her episode when she came onto my podcast. She wrote Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And she is this like wizard nutritionist that totally bucked the system like I did and is doing her own thing because she know it works. That was yes. Oh, awesome. All right. Oysters yeah, on the menu. Perfect. Right. Those little smoked cans of oysters. They're amazing. Yeah. Awesome. A couple, couple per week. You know, with some of the friends, some of the friends that I have, they're literally like my age. Um, it's just more and more popular to be getting testosterone replacement therapy or, or some yeah. level of hormone therapies. And um, usually you look that up and the first side effect says, fertility challenges and decreased sperm count. Yeah. That being said, I've also known people who've been on TRT since their late twenties, or maybe they're former bodybuilders or physique competitors, and they've been using it with various other, um, you know, protective mechanisms, uh, through, through their consumption of, you know, whatever drug they're taking that have been able to have children. What are you, what are you seeing as it pertains to TRT? You know, in addition to lowering sperm count, we're, we're seeing testosterone lower, um, kind of collectively as well. And it seems like more yeah. and more people are leaning on these therapies. How does that relate to, to fertility? Well, on one hand, testosterone is really, really necessary for the production of sperm. The other problem with, with taking any isolated hormone is that it's feeding back to the hypothalamus, the pituitary, oftentimes the thyroid, the adrenals, et cetera. And you're not getting all of the other things that come from, you know, from the adrenals, for example. So <clears throat> on one hand, testosterone therapy should help sperm, but we do know that when people are on it for a long period of time, that they actually get a disruption in, in somewhere in that axis of the endocrine system. And they generally have a harder time getting pregnant. That doesn't mean that it's not possible. You just need one happy little swimmer to meet that egg and magic happens. Um, but what I would always tell people is <clears throat> I wouldn't come off of it right away, but if you're trying and you're having a hard time with it, I think weaning off of the, the testosterone replacement therapy, giving it three to six months for you to try to get, you know, some, I don't know, some normal, normal cadence to how your endocrine system is firing and then trying again, you know, trying to get pregnant again, testing your, your, your yeah. motility and, and count out, you're going to see almost certainly a positive improvement, but that's not the case for everybody. So I don't ever give like a sweeping generalization to anybody, but yeah. a lot of people who are taking testo for a long time do end up having a, an issue with, um, with fertility and virility in the future. Cool. No, that's, that's super helpful. Really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. There's so many more questions that we have on our list that we're clearly not going to get to. And uh, we just will have to have you back yeah. multiple times. Uh, but one thing, if, if we can make it short here, but, and I know it's, it's a big topic, but 
I've been curious about pregnancy and psychedelics, if those two things should be separate, or if you've seen positive benefits, if it's even, if it should be allowed, like, what are your thoughts around psychedelics and pregnancy? If a woman say has had some medicinal psychedelic journeys, um, in, you know, previously before getting pregnant, is that something that she should stay away from during pregnancy? In addition to that, you know, piggybacking is if a woman is pregnant and she's like, you know what, I really want to try this. What are your thoughts there? Well, before we even get into psychedelics, let's just talk about cannabis because we've been shaming women over the ages for doing everything from having orgasms to drinking wine during pregnancy. Cannabis grown by a responsible farmer, let's say that you're biodynamic farmer down the road in organic soil. This is a plant that's provided by nature and it almost invariably is going to be harmless to the pregnancy. The issue is, and actually, let me bring up a study to, to demonstrate that. If anything, it actually perhaps promotes neurodevelopmental, uh, neurodevelopment of the, of, the, of the fetus. And there was one study out of Jamaica that actually Kyle Kingsbury turned me on to. It's a couple hundred people. And in Jamaica, cannabis is a part of your culture. It's a part of what you do. So they took two groups of people, one group, they were smoking it. They reported smoking cannabis daily during their pregnancy. And the other group, not nearly as frequent, if at all. And they followed them up over the long term. And they actually found that the kiddos in the uterus who were being exposed to cannabis actually had greater neurodevelopmental scores than the non. Now we can conjecture all we want, but there hasn't been a lot of studies like that anywhere, especially in the United States. The studies that have sort of scorned the use of cannabis in pregnancy are looking at women who smoke a lot of cannabis and people who smoke a lot of cannabis in the United States tend to also not generally take great care of themselves. That's a generalization. Um, cannabis is a big part of my life and I consider myself pretty healthy. On the other hand, if you're using cannabis and occasionally it's got a little something mixed in, it's not from a great, a great source. You're also having a couple beers every day. I mean, like you just don't know what the story is. Maybe you're, instead of a joint, you're smoking a cigarette once in a while. There's all these confounding variables that have shown that these kiddos maybe don't do as well from the U S studies as kids who aren't exposed to that. But we also don't know what else that kiddo was exposed to. Mm -hmm. So when in the United States, again, it's like hands don't do anything. Everything is unsafe in pregnancy. A lot of people are like clean as a, you know, as a, whatever the, whatever the term clean is, as a whistle. A, clean as a whistle. Is that the term? I was like, clean as a whistle yeah. doesn't, doesn't make sense. Uh, clean as a whistle. <laughs> and they of course have a normal, a beautiful baby at the end. Had they added some really, really well-grown cannabis, could it have even been better? We just don't know. Cause nobody's really doing the randomized control trials. So then we, take the conversation to psychedelics and there is zero data. Like we have absolutely no data. However, if we consider what our parents' generation was doing in the sixties and seventies, I'm sure there was some LSD floating around. I don't think as a baby in the uterus, I don't think it was like, Whoa, what's that? I think that they're already probably immersed in the world of DMT in the uterus. Right. right. Yeah. Right. They're, they're out there in outer space anyways. So (laughs) I'm not so sure that it would necessarily matter anyways, but um, there are some reports out of the Amazon tribe, you know, the Shipibo and some other, uh, some other indigenous uh, cultures within the Amazon river basin where ayahuasca is a, an important part of what connects them to mother earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're using ayahuasca throughout pregnancy, throughout childbirth and into postpartum and beyond like little kids are just taking ayahuasca all the time. Wow. Now, are they on like 
Are they ripping through the cosmos every day? I don't think so, but they don't seem to have any issue. If anything, perhaps they are neurodevelopmentally delayed based on our U.S.'s perception of what a child should be able to do, which is to not talk with the jungle, but is to read at the age of three. Right. Yeah. So what is our metric? Like, like what's yeah. that phrase? Like it's, it's no, it's no um, measure of, of health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. Right. So if that is like, we got to stay over here, guys, you do your weird your American thing. We're going to do our thing. If we would consider that challenged developmentally, then so be it. But we have no data to support that it's dangerous, that it causes fetal demise or anything else. And I don't think that those people's, um, would report that either, even if we did really did do a robust study. Mm-hmm. Touchscreen functionality is shown to be, you know, less optimal. <laughs> yeah, right. Amazon right. Intra, yeah. Right, exactly. exactly. Uh, we did we did use it in our in our pregnancy, and I met the soul of this baby, and she mm-hmm. is the soul I met when she was in utero, and it was very challenging for Stephanie when we did it because there it's a challenging experience, but for me it was one of the most rewarding things I ever could have done. So people yeah. can take wow. that for what it is. Amazing. Did you, did you, was it mushrooms or was it? Yeah, it was mushrooms. Okay. Yeah. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, cause it, I mean, it is, I would be rather, I'd prefer to do that than something synthesized like LSD and like yeah. MDMA and all those things. Those are definitely a no, no in pregnancy mm-hmm. for anybody who's listening, but you know, mushrooms grown in your, your own planter who have been loved and sung to and everything by Papa, it then goes into the yeah. uterus and we can connect like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yes, I love it. I'll take <laughs> it. <laughs> well, as we come to a close, I just want to say thank you so much for being here and sharing so much of your wisdom and honesty. We are obviously grateful to have you as a guest and, and gift your wisdom to all of our listeners, but just so grateful to have you as a friend mm-hmm. now. And we just immediately connected with you. And I, I hope we are friends for a very long time because you're, um, you're just such an incredible human. So yeah, big love to you. Big hug. Um, we do have some rapid fire questions for Let's you. So the medicine podcast is all about forming relationships and using these medicines that help us form conscious relationships in every aspect of our life. We'll focus on uh, body, mind, and relationships, but currently for you, what feels like medicine for your body? Medicine for my body, it comes through being present with my daughter's. Mm. That is medicine for me. Mm-hmm. Not not spending time, but being present. That is really a learning edge for me. But it, it feels so good, and I've missed them so much when I was traveling this past week. So yeah, yeah. that's great. Well, what feels like medicine for uh, for your mind? I think medicine for my mind is connecting with people in an authentic way. Um, where I, it, it gives me my mind permission to go in, into that, that, that nuance. And that really serves me so well, being able to ask those hard questions and people showing up in conversation and holding space for me to, to get a little weird. I mean, that really does serve me intellectually and yeah. uh, I can't do that in the system. So, yep. so these conversations are really serving to me in many ways. I love it. It's a love language for us. Yeah. 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 Get weird, get deep. Um, what about for your relationship or relationships in general, what feels like medicine? 
you know, for the past couple of years, we haven't had a lot of in-person interaction. And this past week I was in Austin and just sitting on the floor and doing nothing with good people. Like I was staying with Tosh and Kyle Kingsbury and just being with them in their space in all their glory um, is something I've really, really missed. And with all the Zoom calls and podcasting, it's great. I mean, I'm so, but I'm so excited to meet you guys in person. And mm -hmm. I, I really have missed that in-person interactions. So <clears throat> that is definitely sustenance for my, for my relationships is getting to hold people and touch them and kiss them again. Yeah. yeah hell yeah. Absolute mm. nourishment. Mm, so good. Thank you so much. Where I know there are people listening right now, men and women who are like, I got to get connected to this guy. How can we work with him? How can I put dibs on him to be my OBGYN? <laughs> How do people work with you? So you can do, we could do one-on-one -on -one consultation through my website. Everything's at belovedholistics.com. And um, I also have this collaborator program for health coaches, midwives, et cetera, where I make myself available on retainer basically for a monthly fee for you to bounce anything off of me in order to better serve mm -hmm. your clients, your patients, et cetera. Um, and I've got midwives, nurses, life coaches. I've got a whole sorts of people that are doing that because they don't want to have to engage with the system knowing what they know about the system. Sure. And so I may even say, listen, this is really serious. I do think that this needs to go to the hospital, be further evaluated, but that's very, very, very rare. So anybody who's interested in doing that, I'm still accepting some collaborators. They can find that again at belovedholistics.com. And I am considering attending home births around the country and flying mm -hmm. with a big, big big pile of gear and just showing up and, and being there uh, for people that want to have that home birth, but they can't find a midwife or anybody locally. So anybody who's interested in exploring that or needs that, just reach out to me privately again through the uh, the website. And then I've got my podcast as well, the Holistic of a yeah. podcast. You guys are going to be on there shortly. Yeah. And, uh, well, you're, you've already recorded, but we'll be releasing yeah. that one soon. And um, guys, it's been a huge pleasure. I, I uh, feel the same way you do. And I hope that we get to see each other in person and get to grow this friendship even deeper. Yeah. 100%. 100%. All right, you guys. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much for listening and being here, spending some time with us. We are truly grateful to you. You could be listening to any podcast in the world and you chose this one for a reason. Go check out Nathan and his work at Beloved Holistics. Check out his podcast. It is incredible. Uh, his connection is deep and far and wide um, to, to other amazing individuals. So go check that out. And all of that information will be in the show notes. Go spread some light. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> if you liked this episode, make sure you hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. This will ensure that every episode drops into your library automatically. Also, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Mimi underscore the medicine. To learn more about our favorite health products, foods, and supplements we discuss on here, along with the discounts, visit themedicine.com forward slash medicine cabinet, or just check the show notes for this episode. Until next time, cheers, boo.